3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. I believe it is the 30th of September, just gone 7 o'clock in the morning. Good morning, Malika. Good morning, Priya. Good morning. Good morning. Can you hear me? We've yes. got you live on air. Oh, incredible. Okay. It's, it's my turn to be in the other studio today. And as I have uh, been consistently reminding people whenever we talk about being in two studios, um, please make sure to keep checking those exposure sites to stay safe, to get vaccinated if you can, and to get tested if you are experiencing any symptoms of coronavirus. And you can find out more information about that at the Victorian Government's Department of Health website. Yeah, it is. Um, we're all just talking about how it's getting very tiring being in lockdown, but the case numbers are still going up and it's pretty um, serious. And, yeah, sick people, you know, hearing of people getting very, very sick, it's um, pretty, yeah. So just look after yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, I mean, I just want to acknowledge as well that it is really, it is really hard for um, a lot of Victorians have been expressing concerns about, uh, you know, the fact that we've been in lockdown for so long, longest lockdown in the world and uh and yet our case numbers are rising and rising and just a reminder to you know take a moment out and try and take care of yourself if you can if there's anything that you can do to sort of take the pressure off and uh you know don't be ashamed to talk to anyone you can always contact lifeline on one three one 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 four yeah and yeah reaching out to family and friends and checking on people is still even though it feels like we just have to keep doing it, it that is the case we do have to just keep on doing it um make sure you're reaching out and making those connections and um enjoying a picnic if you're if you're able to do that because that is you know very good for the soul yeah uh when well look this mystery storm hasn't hasn't hit yet but now that i've said it it probably will while we're in the station yeah well hopefully it hits while we're in the station because i'm i'm ready for it to happen and stop anticipating all of this rain that's not coming and then yeah let's just get it done yeah we need picnic weather back yeah (laughs) yeah So we've got a huge show on today. Yeah, um, let's, let's hear what's on. Sure, um, I, I can kick it off. So Melbourne Activist Legal Support held a discussion on Tuesday the 28th of September about the Surveillance Legislation Amendment Identify and Disrupt Act 2021, which gives broad powers to federal police and intelligent agencies to spy on, disrupt and modify communications. And so we're going to be playing a clip from that event featuring lawyer and human rights advocate Angus Murray, who discusses the legislation and also the notions of relevant offences and reasonable suspicion with some comments from host. Jordan Brown from MALS. We will then be speaking with um, Victorian Legal Aid, who have operated Independent Family Advocacy and Support, or IFAS, a non-legal advocacy support service for parents in the early stages of child protection involvement since 2018. Today we are joined by Chloe, a member of the IFAS reference group, to speak about their role and importance of the service. 
Find out more about the independent family advocacy and support and read the evaluation report at Victorian Legal Aid's website, legalaid.vic.gov.au. And then we'll be joined by Jazz Money, a poet and artist of Radjuri heritage, currently based on sovereign Gadigal land, and her poetry has been published widely and reimagined as murals, installations, digital interventions and film. And she's joining us to discuss her award-winning debut collection, How to Make a Basket. Then we'll be speaking with Sabina, one of the co-founders of the Australian High School Anti-Racism Kit, who will be joining us to talk about their recent launch. Um, Sabina is a migrant woman of colour who recently graduated high school and has created the first anti-racism toolkit for Australian high school students. You can follow the Anti-Racism Kit at Anti-Racism Kit on Instagram. And then finally, we're going to be joined by Frankie Lai from West Justice, who's going to speak about the launch of the Ignorance is Not Bliss report. And Frankie's with the Employment and Equality Law Program at West Justice. And um, this report basically focuses on uh, the Youth Employment Justice Project. And Frankie is strongly committed to improving access to fair, safe and decent work for all vulnerable workers. So it'll be really interesting to hear about this report. Yeah, I mean, that is that is a huge show. Um, yeah. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, before we go to headlines, we'll just hear some CSAs. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It has just gone 7.06 in the morning. And now we're going to go to new headla- uh, news headlines. And I just want to shout out Emily, who is um, a fantastic new member of the crew who's been writing up news headlines for us. So, Emily, if you're listening, thank you so much. Um, so jumping in, in headlines this week, uh, the Australian body responsible for monitoring and compliance of Work, Health and Safety Act has been condemned by refugee rights groups for neglecting to do its job in relation to immigration detention centres. Multiple reports of neglect and cruelty at the hands of the Department of Home Affairs, who run the centres, have gone unchecked by workplace regulator Comcare. In one recent incident, advocates, including an ex-WorkSafe lawyer, noted the blatant disregard for a detainee's mental and physical health after they were placed in isolation as a result of a close contact with a guard at Villawood Detention Centre who tested positive to COVID-19. Rights groups are calling for Comcare inspectors to probe for isolation torture and other act-breaching practices across immigration detention facilities, including leaving people unvaccinated to COVID. We've also got an update on the Australian government's nuclear submarine deal, and there are emerging concerns that the nuclear submarine deal announced this month will see Australia exercise a loophole in the United Nations non-proliferation of nuclear weapons treaty that will set a dangerous precedent. Under the loophole, naval reactors are exempt from nuclear safeguards carried out by the International Atomic Energy Agency. The agency has indicated inspection systems will therefore, to quote the IAEA chief, Tricky. This is the first time a party to the treaty who does not possess nuclear weapons will obtain a nuclear-powered submarine. According to some nuclear non-proliferation experts, this loophole has long been a concern and abuse of this will alter hard-earned non-proliferation norms more broadly. 
Advocacy groups say the AUKUS deal signs a continued drive from, oh, sorry, signals a continued drive from the Australian political class to be a major player in the military-industrial complex and position Australia in direct opposition to China and its allies. We've also got some good news from Torres Strait Island communities who are taking back the power to set a pathway of healing. So members of the Torres Strait Islander communities of Kuriri, which is, um, I guess, colonized name Hammond Island, Daan and Saibai, have this week launched new reports addressing the trauma, distress and long-term impacts caused by colonization. The reports follow a series of healing forums held in 2020 that included a process to co-design a roadmap to healing with priority solutions identified and developed by members of the community in Daan and Saibai. And finally, a coalition of organizations and peak bodies representing people with disability have released an open letter which criticizes the Australian government's failure to vaccinate and protect the nation's most vulnerable people with disability. The organizations address this letter to the National Cabinet and it includes an 11-point plan which outlines urgent actions required by governments across Australia. Key recommendations in the report include, and and I quote, prioritizing in-home vaccinations, maximizing vaccine choice, and increasing transparency around progress reporting. And as we've seen recently, it is um, absolutely shameful and disappointing that the most vulnerable people with disability that are in group homes were actually deprioritized from the phase, uh, phase 1A and 1B of the vaccine rollout. And you can find this open letter and, um, you know, learn more about this awful issue um, at People with Disability Australia's website. Yeah, thanks, Priya. That's really um, important. And we will hopefully follow that up on the show maybe next week because it's such a serious issue. We're just talking about, yeah, looking after ourselves and making sure our community is safe given the increase in COVID cases. And, like, that is just um, pretty devastating and abhorrent news to hear. Yeah, And um, I should note that the letter itself was not released, you know, this week. Um, It was released a couple of weeks ago, but the call is very, very urgent considering what we've recently learned through the Disability Royal Commission about the deprioritization of especially vulnerable people with disability um, in the vaccine rollout. Mm. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Um, I also just wanted to also um, make a shout out to Action for Afghanistan, who are holding their National Week of Action this week. And so they are organising a week of online events and actions to support the calling on the Australian government and parliamentarians to take immediate action in response to the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. So I believe um, this afternoon they're running a Zoom event um, to call Make Demands that Scott Morrison provides a safe passage for people fleeing the Taliban. So you can follow along by checking out the website actionforafghanistan.com.au. Awesome, yeah. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua.
The Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us Poster Design Prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. It's just gone 7.12. Um, just then you heard uh, the news headlines followed by me and Priya slightly miscommunicating across studios, which um, is, you know, it's the consequence of being COVID safe. Um, it is true. That sometimes I want to play a CSA and they don't know. Yeah, sometimes I just want to keep talking, um, which is all the time. So, you know. Feel free to just turn me off. But um, before we jump into the first program uh, for the first segment that we have for today, I just wanted to mention one more thing. And this is a, a an online fundraiser that is being organized by Rise Up. And it's from today, the 30th of September to the 3rd of October, raising funds to be split evenly between the health care and legal fees for West Papuan activist Victor Yemo. Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions, which is the Palestinian-led movement for freedom, justice and equality, and the Mapuche Aboriginal Struggles for Indigenous Land Project. And um, it's basically an online art auction, and uh, there's a bunch of amazing contributors, and you can find out more information by going to at riseup underscore community on Instagram. And now we're going to go into our first segment. So Melbourne Activist Legal Support held a discussion on Tuesday, the 28th of September, about the Surveillance Legislation Amendment Identify and Disrupt Act 2021. So that bill recently became law, and this gives broad powers to federal police and intelligence agencies to spy on, disrupt, and modify communications. And the clip you're about to hear features lawyer and human rights advocate Angus Murray discussing the legislation and notions of relevant offences and reasonable suspicion with comments from host Jordan Brown from MALS. I guess where we could start with all of this is perhaps um, maybe a bit of a primer on how we sort of got to this place uh, and then we can dive into the Identify and Disrupt with that context in our pockets. Um, so over to you Angus. Thanks, Jordan. Good afternoon, everyone. My webcam says that it's on, but I don't think it's broadcasting this group. So I hope that everyone can hear me clearly. Uh, before launching into this, I think a bit of context um, from my perspective is useful to everyone. Uh, although I am a partner and trademarks attorney at a law practice, Irish Bentley Lawyers, um, my position here is not necessarily as a lawyer. Uh, my position here sits more in the work that I've done in civil society organisations, including Electronic Frontiers Australia, the Queensland Council for Prior Civil Liberties, uh, where I'm a vice president of that organisation, the Australasian Cyber Law Institute, uh, and I'm also involved in quite a few other civil society organisations. Um, I also have the great fortune of teaching law as a lecturer at the University of Southern Queensland. And from my perspective, which probably puts the, the history and the context of this back, uh, Integrated context is I um, am a lawyer by profession and I studied law here in uh, where I'm coming from in Queensland 
before taking my studies over to Stockholm, Sweden, uh, where I did a master's by research on the interaction between the personal right to privacy and the enforcement of copyright uh, as a comparative study between Australia and the European Union. That was 2012 uh, that I went to Sweden, and at that point uh, I hadn't really, as a student of law, been exposed to the concept of personal privacy, and I hadn't certainly been exposed to the um, concept of rights subsisting within a digital environment. It was only with the advantage of a European perspective that I, I started to find a focus and interest in uh, what Australia has as its landscape for digital rights uh, and how individuals, human beings, interact in that digital environment. So when I returned uh, from Sweden to Australia, I was fortunate uh, in the sense that my interest was immediately uh, grabbed and focused with the 2013 introduction of the concept of mandatory metadata retention in Australia. Uh, and that's really the, the first piece of significant surveillance landscape legislation that we have in Australia. Uh, mandatory metadata retention as a recap program is a requirement of carriage service providers to retain data about data being metadata uh, for a period of two years. Interestingly, at that point, the Attorney General and uh, Communications Minister involved in the introduction of that legislation really bumbled over this concept of metadata and what it was that was actually being achieved uh, through that process. Um, that legislation was heavily sold by government as necessary to combat and counter terrorism uh, and for the purpose of ensuring that the Australian community is safe. And there are a number of assurances made around that legislation in the various iterations it had through bill form. Uh, there was a lot of lobbying that I was involved with, uh, as were a number of other people in this call and a lot of people across Australia, uh, that were concerned with the path that Australia was heading down and the fairly significant step that mandatory metadata retention had on that electronic communication surveillance landscape in Australia. That legislation passed uh, with only one very minor uh, alteration, that was the requirement for journalistic information warrants. So that's the requirement the federal police uh, obtain a warrant when the metadata that they're seeking to be uh, disclosed relates to a journalist or a journalist source. I'm going to flag now here for everyone because this becomes very relevant with concerns that I have in the more recent legislation that the Australian Federal Police has on a number of occasions accessed journalistic information without a warrant and without going through the proper steps that are required in the metadata retention scheme. Uh, but that piece of legislation was focused on data about data and didn't deal with content between communications. Since 2015, when that became law, we've had a couple of fairly significant legislative uh, progress progressions. The two pieces of legislation that have passed uh, and passed in particularly concerning ways uh, by that I mean the way that they were introduced, the way that inquiry was taken around the legislation, uh, and the context and framing that governments put around uh, those pieces of legislation uh, are concerning and should be a reason to have a discussion in and of itself. But those two pieces of legislation are the um, assistance and access legislation, which is the telecommunications and other legislation amendment, was introduced uh, in 2018. A very, very short window of time was given uh, for submissions to Home Affairs about the legislation. Um, I believe Lucy was involved in aspects of that. 
where we were given two weeks in September in 2018 to put together a submission about a piece of legislation that was almost a 1,000 pages long and has dramatic impact on Australia's tech industry and Australians generally. Uh, despite significant work going into submissions from civil society organisations and a large number of submissions coming from the tech industry, uh, that legislation passed in substantially the same form as it was introduced by the Home Affairs Portfolio. The Minister for that is a common uh, feature across a lot of this legislation. That's Peter Dutton, the now Minister for Defence. The Telecommunications Assistance and Access legislation enables a couple of things, but effectively it is the realisation on uh, the Australian Government's 2016 Declaration of War on Maths. It's the encryption-busting legislation. Um, any government that introduces something with a focus on declaring war on mathematics, I think is the same problem with the government that introduced uh, mandatory metadata retention without knowing what metadata is. It's a fundamentally naive concept uh, and a concept that was widely criticised because encryption isn't just something used by criminals. Uh, encryption is used by the banking sector, indeed it's used by most government agencies in the way that they communicate into government. Um, that legislation was somewhat watered down, uh, although only very minor amendments were made, and allows the government to request um, or provide notice to a very wide-ranging classification of uh, providers called designated communications providers, requirements that that designated communication provider does any number of acts or things to assist government with the, um, the interception or access to their uh, service. A designated communication provider is effectively any person or entity that has an end user and that includes websites. So incredibly broad and the definition of designated communications provider I, I think warrants some concern in and of itself. That's so we're not just talking, we're not, yeah, we're not just talking about ISPs here, we're, we're talking about anyone right. who runs a website or? We're talking about anyone who has an end user. So even more broadly than a website, a website uses a specific example of a designated communication provider, but it's anyone who uses an electronic service that has an end user. So it doesn't even need to be a website. It could be offering any form of communication platform, any form of payment gate, any form of uh, technology that makes available a service to a user or more than one user. Um, so very, very wide-ranging concepts. In that same legislation that substantially reformed uh, or deformed, I think is probably the better way of putting this, Australia's telecommunication landscape and the way that we have internet operating in Australia was a number of other um, fairly subtle but quite important changes. One was a change to the definition of computer in the Surveillance Devices Act, which is now one computer, two computers, a network of two or more computers or any of the above. So when we're talking about target computers, we're talking about effectively the internet. Uh, and that legislation had quite a bit of attention around it because it, it, it is extremely intrusive powers um, and was introduced on a very false uh, footing, a declaration of war on maps. Now, most recently, we have an amendment to the Surveillance Devices Act and other legislation, which is the Identify and Disrupt uh, Bill that became an act at the start of this month. This legislation now allows the Australian government to obtain data disruption warrants, network activity warrants, account takeover warrants, and make assistance orders to require a provider or facilitator of a computer system 
um, to do one of the things or assist with any of the things in one of those warrants. It's incredibly intrusive power, uh, and if we take ourselves back to where I started this introduction, where I found my interest and passion in this space in Europe, a lot of these powers are abhorrent to our European friends, and the reason for that is simply there is federal or at least international multilateral harmonised human rights protections in Europe, and a large number of these powers would be incompatible with the human rights expectations of our European friends. In Australia, we don't have those human rights protections. What we have instead is a required trust of our legislature, the government, that they will do things for our benefit and not to our detriment. And if I go back to the example I gave about journalistic information warrants in the first piece of this particularly abrasive legislative slide we've taken ourselves down, if the federal police couldn't comply with the simple requirement to get a warrant for journalists when they didn't require warrants for anyone else, it's a little bit difficult to say that this isn't heading down a path where we're giving a toolkit of enormous powers to a very small group of people that are secret in their operation and haven't got a particularly good track record of understanding technology or using the power that they've been given in relation to technology. And I think that's probably the, the most succinct summary I could give of where we get to now. There are obviously a lot of uh, very important intersections that come into that. Mm. Um, I do welcome uh, any of our audience to uh, feel free to post any uh, questions they may have in the chat. Um, I have one to kick this off, though, just about while we're getting into the warrants. Um, So say, for example, I think all of them actually contain phrases such as uh, in in regards to the, the threshold in which they're tripped off. Um, the phrase relevant offences and reasonable suspicion. Um, perhaps we could talk about the relevant offences first and maybe get into this element of reasonable suspicion. But, yeah, what? maybe even get into some examples as well. What, but what is a relevant offence in this context of the Identify and Disrupt frameworks, the Act? Yeah, that one's directed to me, John. I'm happy to, to take that. And uh, it's a very important point. Firstly, uh, because it's probably easier to take the reasonable suspicion before the relevant offence. Reasonable suspicion is an incredibly low bar. It just requires that the decision maker has a skerrick of evidence that gives a reasonable basis to have suspicion that a relevant offence is occurring. So the smallest piece of information that could possibly come into the hands of uh, the federal police or one of its agencies would give rise for the basis of uh, these warrants being issued. A relevant offence, I have to start by again emphasising that this legislation has been sold to the Australian community to the extent that this has been a transparent, open and consultative process that has given us this legislation. Uh, this has been sold to the Australian community as necessary to protect the Australians against terrorism, necessary to prevent human trafficking and to frustrate or remove child exploitation material. Personally, I agree with all three of those um, rationale or bases for having legislation. Each of those three things are abhorrent to a properly functioning society, but that's not what a relevant offence is. A relevant offence is defined uh, as a serious Commonwealth offence, and the Crimes Act gives a list of uh, non-exhaustive things that are serious Commonwealth offences, Included within that list are things like distributing child exploitation material, harbouring terrorists, terrorism, uh, etc. But that list doesn't stop there. It includes things like 
drug offences with a very broad and unlimited concept, tax evasion, misuse of a computer, or any offence that is a matter of the same general nature as one of those three things I've just mentioned and is punishable by a maximum of three years imprisonment or more. If you fail to lodge your tax return for four years, you would be liable in a situation potentially to be a subject of a reasonable offence. And if there was a scary bit of information that that was a possibility for you, these powers have an arguable application to your situation. And that is nowhere near the same territory as this is legislation designed specifically to prevent or frustrate the existence of terrorism, terror activity in Australia. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855am and you just heard Angus Murray speaking about the Identify and Disrupt Bill, uh, sorry, Act now, 2021, and notions of relevant offences and reasonable suspicion at an event that was held by Melbourne Activist Legal Support on Tuesday the 28th of September to discuss uh, the Act. Um, you can find out more information from Mal's website. So that's Melbourne Activist Legal. Um, and if you just look that up on Google and they've got a page um, where they talk about the Identify and Disrupt Bill, which is uh, very informative, um, useful, and I recommend that people have a read if they want to learn more. And now we're going to go to an interview with um, Chloe, who is a member of the uh, Independent Family Advocacy and Support, or IFAS, Reference Group for Victorian Legal Aids non-legal advocacy support service for parents in early stages of child protection. So uh, good morning, Chloe. Thank you so much for joining us today on Thursday Morning Breakfast. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. So maybe before we jump into uh, a bit of a discussion about the function of the service, can you tell us a bit about um, how it came about? So what is the Independent Family Advocacy and Support Service and what does it do for parents and families in the early stages of contact with the child protection system? So IFAS is basically designed to support parents in those early stages. Obviously, when child protection come knocking, um, it's quite overwhelming and traumatic for families. They're often at a point of crisis where somebody's coming in saying you need to make significant changes or you're at risk of losing your children. It can be really hard to make good, well-informed decisions without support and a lot of those matters proceed to court, you know, which is expensive and even more traumatic and has long-lasting impacts for those families. So IFAS is really about providing that support early on and helping parents to navigate a system to the best of their ability to make better decisions and get better outcomes. Yeah, definitely. And it's a non-legal advocacy support. So this is also around, you know, providing um, the that kind of assistance around navigating the system, getting familiar with terminology and responding to particular kinds of queries. Because I've seen um, in a media release put out by Victoria Legal Aid, uh, the child protection system can be pretty fraught and one IFAS client did mention that interactions felt like dealing with the police. Um, so can you t- take us through the value of having this independent advocacy support when dealing with a system which is um, at times isolating and also adversarial? Absolutely. Look, I think <laughs> it's, I have found, you know, and I've had the opportunity to interview several parents who were able to use that service, um, And look, the common experience that they found was that it was overwhelming, that there's a real power imbalance between a parent at risk of losing their children and a a child protection worker 
who's making those decisions for you. And parents are not legal experts. They don't know the child protection legislation. They're not familiar with the Children, Youth and Families Act. Um, they're, they're not an active decision-maker in that system because they don't have the information to be able to make those decisions. So IFAS is really about a lot of it is deciphering information that can be confusing and hard to understand. And, look, to be honest, it, it is a system that is under-resourced, over-utilised, and it can be really hard to build a, a good working relationship when workers keep changing, people are not available. It's really frustrating for parents to have to manage that on top of all of the issues that they have to address to keep their families together. So every parent, not some, not most, every parent that we spoke to that had used the service identified the benefit of having someone who actually had the time and the ability to go through that information with them so that they could be a more effective communicator and be a more active decision maker in that process. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, if you think about, uh, I guess, the the main uh, priority groups that, that IFAS is supporting, uh, it's mainly supporting um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families and also uh, parents who have a disability. And I think, you know, for both for both groups, you know, there, there's a there's a history of, um, you know, um, intervention by the state and, you know, by the child protection system, by the police, uh, without much of a, uh, much resourcing of these self-advocacy services. For sure. And and we know that those groups of parents too are also overrepresented within that system or they're having multiple engagements with that system. So there's, there's things that are continuing along for those parents. And the idea of providing that early intervention, non-legal advocacy, is to actually stop some of those things at the start, yeah? So getting them that information, referring them to services that can support them. And and I guess, look, it's just a third person helping do some of that legwork in what should be a team process because ultimately both child protection and the parents really want those children to remain with their families. It's a common goal. Yeah, definitely. And I'm also um, interested in your experience of being a part of this IFAS reference group. So how did that involvement come about? And what's the role of the reference group in guiding how IFAS works? Oh, that's a long story, but I'll try and condense it for you. (laughs) So, look, I had my own child protection engagement several years ago now, and there wasn't a service like IFAS to offer support. But I had a really, really fantastic child protection lawyer who worked through one of the community legal centres where I lived. And several months after my matter had closed and my children came home to me, um, she actually emailed me that Legal Aid were advertising a position that she thought I might be interested in. And so I applied and I was super nervous and wondering how things would go and I met Helen, the manager of the ISAS service. And although I didn't get the job, she was so interested in, in my story and my experience that she actually said, we'd love you to be part of the reference group mm. because they will be working directly where you can share your experience with other parents who have experienced that system in order for IFAS to actually provide the best service possible. So they're directly informed by parents who understand what it's like to go through that system and they're able to work out how best parents can be supported based on actual experiences. 
Yeah. And it's it's also been um, it's been good to see um, in the report that recently came out. So this is an evaluation report by RMIT University um, that the reference group, the shared experience um, reference group, has had input into the way that the evaluation was conducted too. It absolutely did because I actually was the lived experience consultant on that RMIT evaluation panel. Uh, so look, we spent three years basically collecting. Um, information from parents, from other stakeholders, which means from child protection itself, to really try and work out what sort of impact that ISAS was having. And we did find at the end of that, that long project um, that it was an absolutely worthwhile service. And all parents and some child protection workers themselves identified that having that third-party independent advocacy really supported communication, it improved communication. Mm. It, it made it a lot easier for information to go back and forth and for parents to actually understand where they stood, what the protective concerns were and how they'd best go about moving forward and addressing those. Yeah, definitely, because I can imagine that without having that sort of mediating role, it can be, you know, pretty frightening and, um, you know, adversarial when, when parents are, you know, not resourced to actually make the changes that are required um, to, to avoid any further contact with the system. Absolutely. And, and that's not a, a criticism necessarily of the system as such, although, you know, for sure it could do with more resourcing. But it's the other support services around as well. And that stigma of being a bad parent there's a real reluctance, I think, for parents to actually say, I'm not managing, because there's an expectation from society in general that you're a parent, you do absolutely everything you can for your children. And in reality, we know by the numbers of children that are going into care and the numbers of people that are being engaged with child protection that sometimes that doesn't happen. It's not a perfect world. Mm. And those parents deserve that support. They need that support. And for me, it's a no-brainer. Get that support in early. And some families, you know, they may not be able to access that support. They may not get the outcome that they want. But you can't take an opportunity that you're not given. And that's why ISAS is so critically important, because it does provide just that extra opportunity to make changes. Yeah, of course. Um, so... You know, having seen the program develop from 2018, what do you hope for IFAS in, in the future? Oh, look, I really hope that IFAS is actually rolled out across all child protection offices. I think every parent accessing that system is entitled to that support should they wish to take it because it is a challenging system to navigate. It's not easy. I think everyone would agree that by the time you're involved with that system, that there are probably other issues happening for you and so having that support is really important. But I'd also like to see it um, expanded to include parents who actually have had their murder progress to court because I think certainly I get a lot of calls for parents who are already at the point where their children have been removed, there mm. are court orders in place and it makes it a lot more difficult at that point then to, to work towards that outcome of getting the children home because that decision sort of already been made without the parents agreeing and, mm. and they're in that limbo where they don't know where to turn to support. So it would be awesome to see that actually expanded to include every parent. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, it sounds like such an urgently needed resource um, because, you know, you're only capturing part of the people that are are engaging with the system when you're getting that early intervention, which is crucial. But as you've mentioned, the scope is much, much broader. Um, is there anything else you'd like to mention before we wrap up? Look, I think if anything, just a, a message to parents. You know, if you do find yourself in the position where child protection are knocking at your door or calling you with a list of concerns, absolutely get help. I know it's hard. But reach out for that support. It is there. You do deserve it. And you can actually get a good outcome and work with child protection to keep your family together. Well, thank you so much for that. And, yeah, really hoping that people who are listening um, have a look at the IFAS uh, resource on Victoria Legal Aid's website. Thank you, Chloe, so much for making the time. Thank you again for having me. And uh, that was Chloe, who's a member of the Independent Family Advocacy and Support, or IFAS, reference group with Victoria Legal Aid. And IFAS is a non-legal advocacy support service for parents in the early stages of child protection involvement, and it's been operating since 2018. And you can find out more about IFAS and read the evaluation report at Victoria Legal Aid's website. So that's legalaid.vic.gov.au, and you can look up Independent Family Advocacy and Support. There. Now, I just wanted to mention um, a bit of an urgent headline. This is uh, based on investigative reporting uh, by uh, reporters at New Matilda, Chris Graham, Cherry Von Horkner, and Jack Marks. And um, this is related to the situation in Wilcannia. So uh, this was released last night. Uh, they put out a, a report, which is in progress, uh, about leaked minutes from an emergency meeting revealing that government officials blocked Wilcannia's pleas for COVID-19 help. So, you know, this really confirms uh, what we discussed with Monica Kerwin from Wilcannia um, a couple of weeks ago, who very generously made the time to join us and speak about government failures in providing uh, the Aboriginal community in Wilcannia with support. Right now, I believe it's around 40% of the community that is infected with COVID-19, and 100% of those people are Aboriginal. It's an absolute shame, and uh, there's a really great write-up of this special investigation, which is ongoing on newmatilda.com. So you can look up hashtag meanwhile in Wilcannia. Um, and I really encourage people to read this because no doubt this situation is happening across far west New South Wales communities. Um, this is, yeah, an absolute shame and unfortunately not an isolated incident um, but ignoring communities, pleas for help very early on in the piece and removing them from the meeting minutes is really concerning. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter.
You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. It's 7.44 almost in the morning. Um, and up next, we're really lucky to be joined by Jazz Money, a poet and artist of Wiradjuri heritage currently based on sovereign Gadigal land. Her poetry has been published widely and reimagined as murals, installations, digital interventions and film. And she's joining us to discuss her award-winning award-winning debut collection of poetry, How to Make a Basket. Good morning, Jazz. Welcome to Thursday Morning Breakfast. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, I first wanted to just invite you to introduce yourself um, and also to, I don't know, talk about this debut collection of poetry, which won the David Uniapan Award, which obviously is a massive honour. Um, it's been in the world for a short while now. How are you feeling about the collection? Um, yeah, thanks. So, like you said, my name's Jazz. I'm a Wiradjuri woman from uh, central South New South Wales on the beautiful Murrumbidgee River, um, but currently living on beautiful Gadigal land in Sydney. Um, the book has been out for a couple of weeks, which is it's such a funny time to have something like a book come out. I mean, I don't really know because I've never had one before, but um, just the process of having something come out into a pandemic is so funny because writing a book is very solitary and reading a book is very solitary and then there's this kind of moment where something is born and, you know, it's hard to tell what's been going on, but it's such an honour and a privilege to have it out and have it in people's hands and, and be hearing what people are thinking of it. So, yeah, it's been really special, but just a bit a bit odd, I guess. <laughs> I know, yeah, those those moments of contact where you get to actually have conversations. I suppose um, in a very small way, radio interviews are kind of this nice place where we're, we are distance, we're on the phone, um, but we're also connected to people listening. So that, that's kind <laughs> yes, of nice. thank you. <laughs> um, while I was reading the poems, I did notice there was a lot of, like, tactility um, in the descriptions, a lot of... Um, Descriptions of country, river, trees and dirt were in, in contact with the, your body or the speaker's body. And I was wondering if you could speak to that tactility, whether it's important to express that through the poems for you. Um, was it something you were thinking about and, yeah, um, where that kind of came from? Um, that's a great, great question. So thank you. Um, I guess it comes just really from the way that I am engaging with the world and the things that I'm kind of um, missing and valuing. A lot of these book, a lot of these poems in the book I wrote off country and am in a like almost constant yearning and dialogue for being, being on home country um, or not being in the city, which is where I live most of the time. Mm. Um, and I guess I, I began writing poetry just as a way of sort of um, making things feel easier and kind of trying to be in a, a, a process of soothing and healing myself. And, and that comes from, you know, uh, focusing on the things that make me feel good and safe and I hope make other people feel that way as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely felt reading the poems, uh, yeah, obviously in lockdown at the moment as well in Melbourne and just being um, able to yeah, connect in some way to other parts of um, experience and life is definitely special and something I've, I've found really enjoyable about reading poetry uh, in general in this time. I'm wondering, wondering also um, about the use of Radjuri language in the collection. Um, you mentioned that um, uh, the dictionary, Radjuri dictionary used in the collection in your notes, but um, 
a lot of the poems, like the way that you use the language changes. So sometimes it's um, translated, sometimes it's pitted kind of against English in some way, or um, it ignores English in some way. And I was just wondering about these decisions, um, whether there was an evolution, a change, or it's just different at different in different poems. Um, well, yeah, I guess my relationship with Wiradjuri is kind of constantly shifting and changing because I'm still very much a learner of the language. I'm kind of all right um, in some contexts, but I'm not really conversational yet. And that's, you know, a constantly, you know, changing and shifting thing as I get better at speaking my language and, and being comfortable within it. But um, what made sense to me when writing this collection was just to use the language that you know, I care more about than I care about English. Mm. Unfortunately, English for me is, is the language that I am most um, fluent in. But Wiradjuri is the language where I feel like so many of the things I want to express are contained within the beautiful poetry and richness of the words themselves. Um, and sometimes I think they kind of speak for themselves and don't need a translation. And I wanted to really um, make that space you know, for Wiradjuri speakers reading the book, it's so beautiful to be able to encounter the words being kind of held on their own. But then if you're not a Wiradjuri speaker, I think it's a really lovely invitation to consider what these words mean and try and feel the space around them and see if you can understand them. And if you can't, then there's another, like, great invitation to kind of learn more about maybe Wiradjuri or maybe another first Australian language because I think... Um, kind of making them normal in our in our conversations and in our books is a is a really important kind of um, step for the language regeneration projects more broadly. Mm, I think that's so true, and also I think poetry is pretty unique in the way that um, it invites you to engage with words, not just like what does it mean, but like what does it sound like, what does it feel like to say, all those sorts of things. So it is it kind of makes sense as a place to encounter something maybe that you don't know or something that you do know and, and encounter it in a different way. And that's um, is a really generous and beautiful thing to offer to readers of the language and and readers who don't who don't necessarily understand the words but but are invited to engage with them in a particular way. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I think poetry also has this great thing where it's um, quite contained. Like, you know, no poem is usually more than a couple of pages, so it's kind of like a safe little place to engage with a concept or a theory and then at the end of that kind of assess what you learned or took away without having to read a full novel. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I wanted to talk specifically about, I mean, uh, there are so many poems that I wanted to talk about. It's a really, is a really beautiful collection. I do, should say that before I keep asking these kind of very specific questions. But I just wanted to talk about the poem, um, A Case Study of the Colony. It, it uses the sale of a piece of land or property in Latruida, Tasmania, as a case study of colonial processes of uh, expropriation, frontier violence, capitalism, and that list kind of goes on. Um, I was just wondering if you could talk about that story and what you were trying to do in the, in the poem by speaking to that history and that, I mean, that ongoing history. Um, well, thank you so much for asking about that. I am really proud of this poem and I feel like a lot of people find it maybe confronting um, and I actually haven't had any opportunities to talk about it yet, so I'm really chuffed now that you've asked. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, like you said, it came from reading um, last year a 
real estate listing um, online that one of my friends who is uh, Palawa posted on Facebook just being like, get a load of this, the, the colony is so shameless. Um, and, yeah, it was just this crazy ad that listed all the ways that you could extract things from the land while also saying this was the first time the property had ever gone for sale um, with the subtext that was unwritten in the real estate ad being that, you know, this is stolen land that's never been bought. Um, and I just thought, you know, it's so shameless and it's so grotesque and the fact that they're now listing it for $12 million um, after having sort of taken everything from the land because there's, you know, a forestry plantation there, there's a mine there, there's agricultural holdings, there's a church, like, all, like you know, this <laughs> spiritual and physical degradation um, of something that still remains strong and still remains Aboriginal land. But I just thought it was this really interesting place to kind of have a dialogue and have a conversation. And the way that it kind of sits in the book, this poem, A Case Study of the Colony, it's... Um, rotated at an angle because I really wanted people to get a sense that, you know, this was a shift, this was something else, this was, you know, a, a piece to be encountered in a very different way to a lot of the other poems in the collection, which, you know, there's love poems and there's beautiful things, but there's also um, frustration and anger and this this piece kind of takes the tone of colonial, coloniality that I felt was quite... Um, <laughs> grotesque and I wanted people to kind of have this space of distance when reading it. Mm, yeah, as you say, you could literally not not do more destructive processes to this piece of land, like um, beginning with that uh, first expropriation and um, stealing and then kind of continuing that through for however many years and then selling it after having having kind of taken everything that you can. And you play on that poem in the word mine, which, as you say, there's a mine on that piece of country and then um, that idea of possession as well, which I, I found really powerful and, yeah. You know what? I was so proud of that when I came, did the mine pun. I was like, this is really hot stuff. I'm really, like, playing with language now. And then <laughs> and then a few months later I happened to hear one of the songs from Pocahontas where they also <laughs> on the word and I was like damn that was my favorite movie when I was a kid I've just like subliminally ripped off Pocahontas 20 years later <laughs> oh well you never know I mean that is I think that is actually the beauty of uh writing poetry I feel like we can try you know you can try and be um you do list or like acknowledge lots of sources in your in your notes but sometimes language slips into our mind in ways that we can't understand or predict until it reveals itself later <laughs> Um, you just spoke, uh, mentioned love poems and, um, I was wondering maybe, maybe if you wanted to read, um, Dripping Banksia Pods, I also really love that poem. Maybe more than a love poem, I read it as kind of a, a heartbreak poem or a, a past love poem, um, but it sort of ends with growth and change and maybe if you wanted to read it and then talk a little bit about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, I'm loving your choices. They're things that I wasn't, you know, I haven't spoken about heaps, so it's really delightful. Um, thank you. Uh, so the poem, Dripping Banksia Pods. Boys hanging fists off the clothesline for places I've never been and can never visit. The rest is future. Our clunking cheekbones ringing mistakes my mind will play over a self-inflicted obsession and some liberating kind of power. 
I don't want to change the world. I just want to be there giving out glances as bouquets. Contempt for your lover, hubris in our footsteps. Let me throw salt on your enemies. Let me warm you, darling. Pour milk on your heart, a drop from my breast on each eye to clear your vision. He was the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. Botticelli, Michelangelo, Da Vinci. Every word gospel, every vision featured a blue-eyed beauty, dogmatic from another land. So we learnt to live in a castle, landlocked and European. All I yearned for, red dirt and forever air. What a gag. Symphonic spectral man, suffering malaise, twisted light which moves around or through. This town's a village, sitting with the boys under olive trees, playing cards in torchlight beneath the steeple, a churchyard glow. Bullets lodged from some revolution inside your mother's house. I run, dripping banksia pods, ectoplasmic as I think of you in love, with legs and dimples and smells that aren't mine. I ran from those soldiers into the arms of women. They sing out for me to drink freedom from their lips. Time passing over a backyard fence rusting. I'm safe here. Lover, your pure light shooting through someone else's skies. So that poem um, is very specific and I haven't actually read out loud in so long. So that was really... Um, fun and really interesting the the reason that it's such a specific poem is because i was married to a beautiful hungarian man when i was in my early 20s um and we did live in europe together in this kind of crazy amazing um european or hungarian um uh, apartment that was in a former castle, I think. It, it was it was quite wild. And um, we were there, and I, I'd looked forward to it for so long. We'd met in Australia, and I just really had dreamed of being kind of worldly, global sort of person. And once we got there, I was just so desperate for home and for Australia and for the openness and also realising <laughs> a few months into this very sweet marriage that maybe I was queer and <laughs> maybe I needed to go home and, and figure myself out. And uh, it was a really, really beautiful, strange time. And that's that's what I wrote this poem kind of in the midst of. Um, I was I was living in Hungary when I started writing it and finished it when I got home once I sort of realised how it was going to end. <laughs> mm, I mean, I think that's maybe that's what drew me to the poem was this kind of just, I really felt that sense of um, change or, yeah, self-realisation in some way and I think that they're hard poems to write um, and really convey the meaning of that without it kind of being um, heavy-handed in some way. So, yeah, I thought it was very beautiful. Um, we're unfortunately running out of time um, Maybe I have one more question. I think I'll just have to wrap it up. Maybe I'll ask um, instead just where listeners can find your beautiful book um, and if you're doing any other events or speaking anywhere else that they might want to tune into. Oh, great. Um, so the book is available from 
all good bookstores and preferably um, independent ones because they really need the support in these shocking times. So if, uh, if you can support local independent booksellers, please, please, please do that. Um, I keep popping up in different places <laughs> doing online events at the moment. Um, tomorrow there's a panel that I'm chairing at Western Sydney University online with the incredible Alison Whitaker and Ellen Van Nieuwen, um, which I'm like totally thrilled for. That sounds and... like one to catch for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and I guess in a more kind of concrete sense, uh, there will hopefully, fingers crossed, be a live launch event in Sydney and Western Sydney and in Melbourne, um, probably Melbourne in the new year. So that's uh, an exciting thing for me to look forward to at least, to be able to gather with people in real space. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your new collection, How to Make a Basket, and reading for us on, on air. Thanks very much, Jazz. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. And that was Jazz Money, a poet and artist of Radri Heritage, currently based on sovereign Gadigal land. Her poetry has been published widely and reimagined as murals, installations, digital interventions and film, and she was joining us to discuss her award-winning debut collection, How to Make a Basket. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. Welcome back. You're listening to 3CR um, and it's just ticked over to 8am this morning. Um, We are now going to be speaking with Sabina, one of the co-founders of the Australian High School Anti-Racism Kit, who's joining us today to talk about their recent launch. Um, this is the first anti-racism toolkit for Australian high school students, so we're really excited to speak to Sabina. Good morning, Sabina. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us this morning. Um, really excited to talk about the launch of this tool, um, this kit because it's launched, I think, just a couple of days ago. Hey. Yeah, it released last Wednesday. Yes, it's it's such a beautiful website and kit and keen to talk a bit more about it. I guess as a starting point, can you tell us a bit more about the anti-racism kit and what was like the motivation or inspiration behind it? Yeah, okay, so basically my co-founder Jin Young and I, um, it was around last year when we kind of like looked at a lot of like the anti-racism resources that were available, right? And we noticed that a lot of them were like quite good, but they were still very American, right? Yes. There just isn't like as much for like an Australian context. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, it's so true. I think a lot of the anti-racism resources are usually based from like America or the UK. And I think something that's really unique about your resource is that it's not only completely designed by people of color, like from the 
from start to finish, but it's also like created by students for students, which is really unique. Yeah, yeah, like that was something that we, yeah, we noticed as well. It was like um, for like anti-racism resources, right? Like a lot of them were very like they're very like up in the air and sort of like they didn't feel like super tangible especially like as a young person right because it's sort of like a lot of like current resources like they'll talk about like why um, anti-racism is important but they wouldn't really show us like you know how can we actually like do something about this within our own communities as young people and I guess like within Australia as well like a lot of the resources um, they're like a bit they're a bit old and (laughs) they focus more on teachers actually so it's like a lot of like the kinds of activities and like things that they would recommend it's mostly for like teachers to implement within their own classroom Mm. and the resources were like they didn't really focus on like you know um providing young people themselves with what they can do Mm. so yeah I guess like those are sort of like the main things that kind of Mm. motivated us to I guess like yeah work on the anti-racism kit yeah um so spot on and I think like um a lot like anti-racism comes from a very like academic background and it's now Mm, making its way into community and you're right a lot of the time these resources are about like learning about the content or the theory and what's cool about the anti-racism kit is that you're right it gives those tangible actions or tangible resources that students can follow up with rather than it just being like a classroom discussion yeah definitely like a lot of like a lot of like focus is put into like yeah like how can we make this you know as actionable and accessible and like and digestible as possible for young people yeah and what was it like for you and Jin to your co-founder to kind of um like what was the process like to create this kit yeah so um the pro like working on the kit we actually started this during lockdown actually last year so um we were in the middle of year 12 and you know lockdown happened and we were like hey um you know with lockdown, we both have, like, a lot more time on our hands. Um, we can work on this kit. So <laughs> from the start, it was, like, it was definitely, like, a lot of, like, scouring through the internet for resources, reading them, and, you know, sort of, like, synthesizing them, mm. um, yeah, into, like, something that's, like, more accessible. Mm. Um, <laughs> the first iteration of the anti-racism kit was actually just, like, a massive Google Doc that was just <laughs> lagged because there were just so many pages. And, um, yeah, I guess, like, as we sort of, like, continued to develop it into 2021, um, mm. there was, like, a lot of learning as well. Because I guess, like, you know, everyone experiences race differently, right? Like, mm. I'm a Southeast Asian person of color. And I guess, like, on my end, there was definitely, like, a lot of learning, especially as we sort of, like, researched into, like, you know, what other communities of color are experiencing and trying to find ways in which young people can actually, like, help them out mm. and sort of like contribute to I guess like you know all of their efforts for um yeah like I guess like getting like what like the community wants I yeah suppose. yeah and so true yeah no that's sounds... and yeah no you go sorry <laughs> yeah sorry 
Um, yeah, I just wanted to add though that um, when it came to like creating the kit, there was definitely like a lot of like working with other people, um, you know, like getting advice from people who've been doing this kind of work for a longer period of time than um, Jin mm-hmm. and I have been doing. Um, you know, getting consultations, um, getting a lot of help with like web development and like branding, and mm-hmm. I, yeah, I kind of just want to give a quick shout out to Hugh because yeah. <laughs> they've been so generous. Um, yeah, with this kit, and they've really, like, given us, like, a lot of guidance and, like, help with um, the further development of the anti-racism kit. Yes, no, the people at Hewa are incredible, and it's really awesome that they were able to kind of mentor you and support you through this journey, because to say that you started off as a Google Doc and seeing the website now, that is a beautiful transformation. um, (laughs) It's epic. And so can you tell us a bit more about how young people can use this resource? Because it really sounds like it centers on self-reflection as a starting point. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, Yeah, so like as a starting point, there's like a lot of emphasis on like, I guess like self-reflection as well as, um, I guess like learning about like what racism is, right? So um, I guess like, you know, the anti-racism kit, we want it to be accessible to everyone. So um, you know, it doesn't matter if, you know, you're like a passionate high school student who's already been doing like a lot of work for um, anti-racism throughout high school, or if you're someone who just isn't like familiar with talking about race at all, like we want this kit to be something that, you know, any young person, you know, be it like an ally or a young person of colour can use. Yeah. And I guess, like, yeah, with the kit, it's divided into three sections. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we have the first section, which is called self, which focuses on, like, actions we can take as, like, an individual person. Um, we have a school section, which focuses on what we can do within schools. And then we have, like, a society section, which focuses more on, like, I guess, like, actions we can take in mm. wider society. And I guess, like, um, you know, if you're using the kit, I guess, like, ideally, you would sort of, like, go through um, each section, but, um, you know, you don't necessarily have to sit down and go through all the sections. You can yeah. kind of, like, pick the section that you feel is most relevant. Yeah, for sure. I, I really, really liked the school section. Can you tell us a bit more about why it was important for the two of you to create a whole sex- section dedicated towards anti-racism within school? Yeah, um, I guess, like... We wanted to create like a dedicated school section because they are really important spaces, right? I mean, yeah. like young people were with there for like 200 days a year, <laughs> and because of that, uh, you know, I feel like a lot of young people they have a lot of influence within these spaces, mm. but they often like underestimate like how much of an impact they can actually have on like other young people and I guess like their whole community um, by like working in their schools. And I guess, like, um, for, like, a lot of young people, I suppose, like, whenever they want to, I guess, like, uh, I guess, like, uh, um, move towards social justice, right? I guess, like, school's sort of, like, the first place that we go to because I guess, like, as a young person, it can be, like, kind of intimidating to, like, join, like, outside organizations, right? Because sometimes it's, like, it's full of adults and you're not quite sure if there's, like, a space for you um, within, um, I guess, like, you know, massive like protests or like organizations or campaigns like as a young person and yeah I guess like um throughout high school uh Jin and I have sort of been like pretty like involved with like trying to get like um initiatives off the ground and I guess like we know that it can be pretty difficult right because sometimes the school's culture 
just isn't conducive to these kinds of things. Or maybe you have to deal with like a lot of like resistant teachers or parents or like school admin and stuff. And I guess like I feel like those are like things that um, yeah high school students kind of like struggle with. And I guess like no one really shows you how to like navigate those things、yes. um, unless like someone older than you actually reaches out and like shows you what to do. So I guess like yeah we wanted to at least like have some of those like. Um, I guess like tips and strategies like within the kit、yeah. um, in the school section. Yeah, ah,、oh, that that's so incredible. And you're right, like it can be quite an isolating experience as we explore this as people of color, like especially when we're in high school.、Um, and to know that there is a bit of a community outside of school that we can tap into that is mm, exclusively yeah. for like students of color is incredible, and it just makes that experience. A little bit more, like less isolating or scary.、Yeah. Um, so no, that's so cool, and it, it's incredible that you and Jin have like taken the time during year twelve during a lockdown to kind of create this. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy. Um, and I guess for people wanting to get involved or um just follow along with what you and Jin are doing and what the anti-racism kit is doing, um, yeah, what can people do? Oh yeah,、um, I guess like this is a time to like plug our Instagram. Yes. <laughs> so、um, if you're interested in, I guess like keeping up with the anti-racism kit and seeing like our like plans for the future, because we plan on I guess like、uh, creating like a community or a space where people can sort of like organize and sort of like see if there are any like initiatives nearby. Yeah.、Um, so yeah,、uh, follow us on our Instagram. We're just anti-racism kits. And、um, on our website as well, you can subscribe to our mailing list for updates on, I guess, like yeah, the kit. Nice.、And, oh yeah, as always,、um, spread the word about the kit and、yes. share it with you know people inside and outside of the school community. So yeah, completely agree. And yeah, the, I'd just like to shout out that the website is absolutely incredible and it's so beautifully designed, so user friendly, and <laughs> it, yeah, I really love that balance of sharing information but also resources. But thank you so much for joining us today, Sabina. And yes,、yeah, everyone, check it out. It's awesome. <laughs> no, thank you. You've been listening to Three、um, CR Community Radio, and we were just speaking with Sabina, one of the founders of the Australian High School Anti-Racism Kit. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability, and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends, and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., excluding public holidays. So, if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300-111-500. That's 1300-111-500. Wellways supports 3CR. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood, or school. It's fast, free, and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter.
You are listening to 3CR 855 AM. Um, and we are just jumping into an interview now with Frankie Lai from West Justice. Frankie, um, during her time at West Justice, has coordinated the International Students Work Rights Legal Service, as well as managed and completed the Infographics Project, which has recently um, also managed the um, Youth Employment Justice Project, which has culminated in a report titled Ignorance is Not Bliss, which launched on Tuesday the 28th. Um, good morning, Frankie. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are all of you? Oh, we're, we're pretty good. It's a beautiful day in September. Um, thank you for joining us this morning and really excited to speak to you today about the recent launch of the Ignorance is Not Bliss um, report. Um, could you please tell listeners a bit more about this project and what prompted your team to create and ultimately release this report? Yeah, sure. So... Um, I, as you mentioned, am a program manager in the Employment and Equality Law Program at West Justice. And this was sort of a, um, it wasn't just culminating from the work that our team did. We also have a youth law program and both of our teams had been doing some ad hoc work with young workers in the Western suburbs. And through that work, we identified that there was a really huge unmet need for sort of this specific education and legal support um, when it came to all things employment and issues at work. Um, And the way that West Justice operates is that we provide free legal services generally in partnership with community and other community orgs to make sure that our legal services are accessible. But we also complement those activities with education to empower communities to self-help. And then Mm. um, drawing on those activities, we try and advocate for better outcomes and fairer laws. And so we identified that there was sort of this huge unmet need for young workers who were having issues at work. And this led to us forming the Youth Employment Justice Project, which was sort of a standalone project um, which operated sort of between our youth team and our Employment and Equality Law Program. And it's been running for two years since July 2019. So through that project, we have provided free legal advice to 106 clients and 37 education sessions to about 1,800 young people um, but I guess the primary advocacy piece that's come out of that project is this report, which has sort of brought together everything that we learned um, and and formed all these recommendations for how we can better help young people and make these sort of legal services more accessible. Yeah. And we're really sort of hoping that through this report we can essentially lead to, you know, more positive changes for young workers, particularly those in the Western suburbs. Yeah. I think there's a lot of talk at the moment around the impacts of COVID-19 on young people, specifically around employment. And historically, we know that a lot of young people are in precarious um, employment. And due to the lack of education around work rights and things like that, it can mean that a lot of young people are exploited and don't realise until later on in life. So um, I think this report is really important and one of the cool things about this report is a wide variety of stakeholders you have interviewed what was that process like and why was it important to have that diversity in this research process yeah it was a a pretty humbling experience we were very grateful to have had such a diverse group of people who are willing to share their stories with us um in particular because 
you know, the stories that they did share with us were really vulnerable and they were talking about really challenging, difficult situations. And I think having that diversity was so important for this report because the reality of the Western suburbs is that it is it is a really diverse area. So yeah. we know that, you know, close to two-thirds of the population in the Western suburbs were born in a country other than Australia and close to half of the households speak a language other than English at home. Yeah. And the reality is that we're talking about a community of people who tend to experience higher levels of disadvantage. So, for example, in this report, although we're talking about young workers, we're not talking about young people who are getting jobs to earn, you know, a bit more pocket money to do fun stuff on the weekend. Yeah. They, um, a lot of the young people we're talking to were breadwinners for their families and so that means that you know all of the issues that they're facing in the workplace aren't individual they're issues that are really impacting whole communities yeah yeah that's so true and I guess that leads into my next question like I really appreciated how much nuance is captured in this report and how it identifies like the intersectional needs for young people when it comes to finding work what have you found to be the main barriers for young people through this report that others might fail to report on or even acknowledge well, I think you hit on them really well earlier. Um, as you mentioned, sort of two of the main barriers that really affect um, young people all the way through work is firstly not knowing about their work rights and responsibilities, um, yeah. and that really creates such a, a barrier to entry into the workforce. Um, what we found is just young people are not being taught at school or before entering into the workforce what their rights are what is expected of them at work and they're not necessarily being taught what is even um, expected of them in applying for jobs. And um, precarious work, which you mentioned, is also another major issue because it means that when they do find work, often there's still issues with underemployment. Um, And when we're talking about the intersectional overlay, you know, those barriers that I just mentioned are faced by all young workers, but young people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds sort of have all these additional barriers associated with these issues. For example, what we heard was that, you know, a lot of young people um, from migrant families didn't necessarily have family members who could role model positive experiences in the workplace, and that sort of means that they face additional barriers um, to getting jobs. They, yeah. you know, don't necessarily know what's expected or they they don't know what a positive employment experience looks like, which kind of leaves them more vulnerable to exploitation because they they haven't got that benefit of, of you know, close um, informal advice. Yeah. Um, all, we also saw, you know, them struggling to get jobs because of discriminating discriminatory attitudes of employers and hiring um, a discrimination in the hiring process and this is the same with young people with disabilities and I guess an additional barrier is that these young people from diverse backgrounds are not necessarily seeing themselves in the workplaces in which they want to work and we know that this this creates a barrier to even applying for jobs in the first place like there was a sense of hopelessness among some communities that they wouldn't be hired because discrimination is so rife but 
I think what's also important to note is that these barriers aren't just existing when it comes to looking for work. They kind of carry on all the way through employment and we covered sort of the whole life cycle of employment of young people in work and as a result of these sort of issues and that's not knowing about rights and responsibilities and being in precarious work, we found that exploitation is really common. So with our clients, about two-thirds were victims of some form of wage theft. But also it's really difficult for young people to complain and, you know, improve their situation either because they don't know about their rights or um, don't know sort of where to go for help or because they're in precarious work and they're genuinely fearful for losing their jobs and for good reason if they if they do complain and we did have a lot of young people who came to see us who who did take that step to complain and then were fired as a result yeah yeah I think there's really a lot of unhelpful narrative um, around young people and employment especially in the last year but the reality is like you said there are so many barriers and there are so many ways that they are being exploited in the process and it continues not just in that job-seeking stage but throughout, like, their experience in work. And so um, I I guess, like, what are the key recommendations that have come out of this report? I think that the number one recommendation, which is actually kind of two recommendations, I guess, is just early intervention is so important and what that means for us is, teaching young people about their work rights and responsibilities in schools before they enter the workforce and then also providing sort of embedded accessible legal services, which for us was through schools and through clinics which were co-located with other youth services, so the Visicares Hub and the Youth Resource Centre in Sunshine and Hoppers Crossing. Um, Because what we found is that if you do have these early intervention measures in place, then it can completely sort of change the trajectory for young people. Um, for example, through our you know education and legal assistance, we were able to help young people feel prepared for work and and also help build that confidence to ask for legal rights in the workplace and and the right entitlements. And we were sort of able to empower young people to actually recover their entitlements. So we help yeah. young people to recover more than $150,000 in money that was owed to them. But what was really surprising to us and and why we think that this um, access to free legal services and education is so important is that actually this this form of capacity building helped young people to have positive employment experiences in the longer term. So when we surveyed clients, six to 12 months after receiving our legal assistance, for example, 93% of them were in jobs, and this was during COVID when jobs were scarce. Mm. And of those who found new jobs, 100% of them reported an improvement in their working conditions, and they all sort of, they mostly told us that they thought that what they'd learned about their work rights through getting legal help um, had helped them in their future jobs to either keep jobs or find better jobs. Um, And this is just sort of what we were able to do with a small number of people in one area, but we're calling for a statewide expansion of this program because imagine the benefits if every kid in high school or TAFE had access to education of this kind before entering into the workforce and had somewhere to go for help. 
It would make such a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, And I guess just two final sort of recommendations that we are really um, sort of focused on, oh, sorry, three actually, is that I guess firstly we're, you know, calling on the government to create more pathways into secure and stable employment and so really fix so many of those issues with the precarity of work for young people are in. Um, We also have so many recommendations about how the law needs to be changed to strengthen protections and not just the young workers but all workers. And I guess finally what we're calling for is the abolition of junior pay rates. I don't think everyone is aware but under employment laws in Australia you're not considered to be a full adult for working purposes until you're 21. Yeah. um, Which is completely bizarre and because you know as I mentioned before we're talking about young people in the west who are breadwinners for their family it's it just seems, really important for them to have access to the the same wage rates hey yeah absolutely it just seems so unfair that someone who's been working for you know three years and is 19 years old is earning maybe four dollars less than someone who's 21 and has just started their first yeah. job yeah um, thank you so much for joining us, Frankie. I, I, I would encourage everyone to check out this report and um, you can find it on the West Justice um, website. But yeah, thanks again for joining us, Frankie. Thanks so much for having me. You were just listening to Frankie Lai from West Justice on the recent report that they launched titled Ignorance is Not Bliss. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast and we are fast running out of time. Perhaps we have a time for a very, very brief rundown. Priya, do you want to take us away? Yeah, sure. So first we heard from human rights advocate and lawyer Angus Murray who spoke at Melbourne Activist Legal Supports Discussion on Tuesday about the Identify and Disrupt Act 2021. And after that, we heard from uh, Chloe from the Independent Family Advocacy and Support Service, uh, or IFAS, reference group to speak about Victorian legal aids support for parents in early stages of child protection involvement. And then we heard from Radri poet and artist Jazz Money about her new uh, debut poetry collection, How to Make a Basket. We then spoke with Sabina, one of the co-founders of the Australian High School Anti-Racism Kit, um, about their recent launch. And then lastly, we spoke with Frankie Lai from West Justice about their recent launch of the report, um, Ignorance is Not Bliss. And that is all today. Um, see you next week. Catch you then. Our breakfast Catch would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.